Welcome to the show where three friends rate, debate, and investigate the films you'll love to see and hate to see. This is You'll Love to See It. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of You Love to See It. I'm joined here today with my two usual friends, Eric Zhu and Caleb Brunman. How are you boys doing today? Wow, you didn't, uh, didn't leave the awkward pause for Eric this time. <laughs> well, whenever I do leave the awkward pause for Eric, I cut it in post. So I've just decided to... Oh, oh do you actually? <laughs> yeah, oh I do. <laughs> Save for that pause. <laughs> I have to. It's so long. I literally, <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm like, you can hear recording? the ears. Audience, give me like, is my, is my Wi-Fi out? Yeah, sorry. Code? This is, yeah. Now you guys know the truth. This is a fake podcast. It's all manufactured by me and Post. I actually, what what I do is whenever we talk about films such as like Everybody Wants Some and Eric hates on it, I actually remove the words that make it sound he like he hates it. He deep fakes my voice. And I, say, de- <laughs> I deep fake <laughs> Eric's voice. Yeah. Well, this week, uh, we're going to be talking about the 2020 film that we missed. Uh, I guess didn't miss, but didn't cover on the podcast. Well, I guess I missed it. Uh, Tenant. <laughs> and then um, we will be discussing our next Coen Brothers movie, uh, Barton Fink. So, yeah, here we go, boys. Start with an intro, start with an intro question. Uh, and that is... <laughs> interstellar uh with an intro question which is in spirit of our christopher nolan movie and actually barton fink as well uh what is a movie that you enjoy that is very confusing and requires i guess a lot of picking apart maybe re-watching the film um you know movies like that What what is your favorite one or what one comes to mind i guess I will start just to get the ball rolling. I know you guys probably already have a movie in mind. Um, The two that I'm going to mention because I'm greedy are uh, Arrival, which um, I was just talking with Eric about before the podcast. Um, You know, it's somewhat straightforward of a film, but, you know, the ending kind of obviously completely changes the scope of the film and, you know, I don't think it's as confusing as something. I don't know if anything's as confusing as Tenant. But um, then uh, the second movie was Eternal Sunshine, uh, which plays a lot with this, you know, like where you are and like what's actually happening, what's reality and what's not. Um, you know, it's taken me a couple of times to rewatch the film to kind of completely, I guess, understand all the aspects of it. And it's still a, still find new things every time so those are my two films yeah i think you're right on uh target at least with uh we don't have to talk about arrival <laughs> um but yeah kaufman certainly um puts out these movies that uh just have so much to them it's hard to get in in one fell swoop such as Synecdoche, new york but um I guess I'll bring up 
to perhaps snipe Eric uh, Vertigo, which uh, isn't necessarily as convoluted or especially surreal um, as some of these other movies. It's more of a straightforward narrative, but there's uh, the first time you see it, uh, I don't think it's possible to completely feel the entire scope of, of the story. Uh, I think it's something that's going to get richer uh, emotion-wise the more you dig into it. Yeah, I think especially with Vertigo, that's like the first time you watch it, like when that mid-film twist happens, it like completely recontextualizes everything that happened before. So it's like a, it's like a even more like moving experience the second time you watch it, knowing the intricacies of like Madeline's character the second time around. And um, for my pick, <laughs> I've talked about Mulholland Drive way too many times. So I'm, I'm actually gonna not talk about it this time, but that would definitely fit the bill. Um, the movie I think I'm going to go with is um, Happy Chapong, Rare's Ethicals, uh, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. Um, Apache Pong is the filmmaker that I've been joking about for a while now. Um, recently had a very funny game where his name came up. Um, but he's also like one of my favorite modern filmmakers. And Uncle Boon Me is the one that I think has received the most widespread acclaim, at least in the past 10 years. Um, and that movie, which is about uh, a man named Uncle Boon Me as he's dying, um, not really remembering his past lives, but sort of, it's like a series of spiritual events and si like vignettes that relate to the passage between life and death. And it's a movie where very strange things happen. If you look at the poster, there's a glowing monkey with red eyes. Um, and that character does indeed randomly appear at a dinner table and have a full conversation with a woman who is like half in like the movie and half not she's like faded out she's also a ghost um and the first time you see it it's this movie that's so strange and so slow and so matter of fact about how surreal it is um and it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the imagery but the second time you watch it it's so meditative and the way that the like the matter of factness of it is exactly what's so brilliant about it and it does achieve that sense of like modern day spirituality or how that can subjectively be perceived in a way that's not as in your face and so like fantastical as something david lynch would do as much as i love david lynch so that is my choice <laughs> yeah this is a, you've recommended this movie to me at least before um, it's definitely on my watch list. So I've heard uh, you've had a high praise of it in the past. And it's probably the, uh, of the films we all mentioned, it's probably the least mainstream. So I just got mentioned. It just got mentioned in one of my film classes today. Really? So I was, so, I, so I've been, it's been like, I've been thinking about it. I, and you're I, like, uh, you're like, I've already seen it. I'm an OG. <laughs> like, I, I've been there. Like, you, you, you know, know, you know, me. hipster. You're the, the hipster. hipster. Everyone should like, check his workout tropical malady is like 
That's a big movie for me. Maybe, like, maybe, maybe we'll review one of his films one day. You can then we can add it to the, the movie to the coming list out this somewhere. year. Memoria. Well, then there we go. There we go. Hilda Swinton. We can do a double, you know, an older movie and a and his new one. Um, Caleb, I heard that you have a uh, an, another question, intro question. Is that true? Ooh. So, tenant. Yes. Is the same forwards as it is backwards. What is your favorite palindrome? Favorite palindrome. Oh man. Gosh. I, I don't Eric, do you have an answer for this? Aha. Uh-huh. Mm. That's go. not that's not uh, I mean, I guess is that technically uh, a palindrome? A H A. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Um I, I I'm trying to think of the ones I know off my head without looking any up that I've I've definitely seen a bunch before. I've gone through. Um I I know race car. Um I know I know sentence. Is it still a palindrome if it's a sentence or is it are palindromes only words? No. I always forget. Yeah, it can be a sentence. They can be a sentence. Okay, because I knew one that was like what was it? It's like geese, it's with geese. Oh, I th- it's like like uh, geese. Um, do geese see God, dude. Geese see God. Yes, yes, yes. Um, oh, never heard of that one. That's sick. Yeah, there's what? What, what is your favorite? Well, I got a sentence one that I've had. A sentence a one, okay. Is uh, Doc note I dissent. A fast never prevents a fatness. <laughs> I diet on cod. <laughs> uh, do, do you do you think? palindromes have happened naturally in the world like do you think there's a book what out do there that mean? no like i mean like do you, <laughs> do you think there's a book out there where someone has accidentally not realizing it written the longest palindrome in existence i mean obviously palindromes there's not the longest in existence because you could forever construct it but in terms of like the longest ever written in like a book do you think someone i mean do you think it i wonder what the longest palindrome is in a book is what i'm trying to say like unintentional palindrome. did someone like yeah someone, I like, <laughs> i've seen i've seen well you know what i have seen is i've seen entire paragraphs uh, i've probably seen on reddit or something written and i don't know i don't remember if they were palindromes or if they were like one way meant one thing and then backwards meant another because i know that's not a palindrome you know like think like dog and god like they're two different things backwards so i'm not sure I wonder, I wonder, that's an interesting question. Um, speaking of which, fun fact, not even fun fact, I'm curious before we venture into Tenant, do you guys know like where it, the, like, the name came from? Have you seen the, the thing? What's the thing? Have you seen, so I don't know what it's actually called. I, it's a real thing. Um, I should look this up. Um, uh, because I, so I was watching a video there's like this i don't know like who made it or oh here it is it's, a, it's the sator square have you guys seen this no I so apparently this is fun dude if you didn't know this yet your mind's about to be blown not really but so this apparently is the sator square it's a real it's hard for you guys to see um that's oh, the sator square whatever way it has the word sator arempo tenant opera rotas whatever way you turn this it's a palindrome so um and all the words are present in the movie tenant opera 
um, Rotas is the company that um, she, the woman has. Uh, Sator is used at one point, and Arepo is also all Sator five words. Villain. Yes. Okay. Right. Yes. I was. I don't remember. They're all glossing over me. But all five words are used. So I'm not obviously. I'm not like this. Isn't the inspiration? But obviously, he knew. You know, he. Yeah, that's sort of sick. Yeah. How old is it? Um, it is, well, Wikipedia tells me it's a two-dimensional word square containing a five-word Latin palindrome. Um, the earliest example of the square dates from the ruins of Pompeii attributed to pre-Christian origins, such as Jewish. Um, I'm not sure how old it is. Yeah. Apparently, it's been recreated so many times, so it's just um, the I oldest. I can totally turn and just see it and go like, Dude, honestly, so the like, oldest, like, like <laughs> it's a palindrome. Yeah. Like, yes, <laughs> the oldest datable representation was found in the ruins of Pompeii. So that's the oldest, but it's been repeated kind of all over the world. So that's kind of interesting. Um, saw that in a video I was watching um, about Tenant. Yeah, I guess we should get into Tenant. Um, I, I, I can introduce it. Um, I guess before the little precursor is no one is no, you know, this isn't, he's no rookie to making confusing films. Um, you know, obviously Interstellar is my favorite film. Definitely not a straightforward film. Inception is probably the closest thing to Tenant in terms of obviously it's manipulation of time. Um, what else? Uh, the Prestige. Uh, the Prestige. That's definitely uh, one of, like... Yes, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, so he's he's has experience in this in that category of confusing and requires multiple viewings, and I think Tenant might be his most ambitious one yet. And I think the issue many have with it, as we'll get into, is that it falls so much shorter than all of these other films. Um, I don't agree with that, uh, but yeah, let me introduce Tenant. So. Tenant takes place, um, I guess it's supposed to take place in present day, right? That's the, is the beginning of the film, technically present day. Um, with Something the, like yeah, whatever. Uh, with the protagonist um, as, the, as the protagonist. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, we're at the very beginning of the film, there is this mission that he's on. He is a failed mission, whatever. Basically wakes up from a coma and he is given this one word, tenant, and basically told that the survival of the world depends on him. Uh, the rest of the two and a half hours of the film have to do with international espionage and figuring out, you know, this whole thing with time. And, um, and yeah, and it doesn't get any less confusing from there. Um, so let's start. Um, yeah, so this is Christopher Nolan's. How, what, what, what movie is this? Is this his? At least 10th, right? I think, it's, I think it's 10th. Is it 11th? It's, I think it's his 11th feature. Oh, his 11th feature. Right. Um, it had a lot of hype coming into 2020, you know, prior to COVID. Um, you know, it sucks. I really do believe if I had seen this film in, in theaters that I, it would have easily raised at least half a star for me personally. Um, I, I mean, no one films are notorious, obviously you, like you got to see him in the theater. And I feel like tenant was one of those films where it's like of all of his films, 
it probably would have really benefited from being seen in a theater. You saw it in theaters, right? Eric? No, I didn't. I saw oh, it at home. But I mean, yeah, especially like what he's doing with sound and oh, like yes. this yes. one, especially is a spectacle. So like this, like his movies definitely like you want to be in a theater for them. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it stars John David Washington as the protagonist and notably Robert Pattinson as Neil. Um, also Elizabeth uh, Debicki. Debicki as Kat and Kenneth uh, Brana, Brana? Uh, Brana? Yeah. Brana as Andre Sator. Um, and yeah, this movie... It starts off kind of, there's not a lot of confusing elements at the beginning. It really ramps up pretty quickly. Um, and then the last chunk of the film really just lays a lot on you to think about. Um, God, I don't know where to start. There's so much to discuss. I also feel like I'd rather discuss this than move on to our next film. So <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, I, yeah, I, no, basically I'm, I'm, like the, the main plot of the movie is that with, without spoilers, I also realized the trap I've gotten myself into as I try to yeah, figure yeah, out the right. plot of the movie is, is yeah. Kenneth Branagh is Andre Sater and he is trying to make this object, mother box, to use Justice League terms, um, <laughs> mysterious magic object called the algorithm um, that will let him do something with time, cause World War Three create moral (laughs) war um and to stop him we have our heroes john david washington's protagonist and robert pattinson's neil who are figuring out or at least it seems like they're figuring out how tenet which is the name of an organization is it the cia is it cia it's just no who like who tenet is yeah Uh, we're gonna get into spoilers but it's 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 not the cia it's not okay yeah they're 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 trying to we're gonna have to go through spoilers to talk about this i mean this movie technically came out like over six months ago come on yeah no come on but yeah and on the way they have um they meet up with kat who is Sater's wife um she is an unhappy wife who um is like yeah, like at the mercy of Seder. And um, she and her child are like the primary emotional crux of this movie. And that's pretty much about as basic as I, um, that's pretty much my basic understanding of the plot. <laughs> that, I mean, that is, that's, I, that's as basic as you can make it. Like it's, it's not something you can really boil down very easily, intentionally so um i i think we're we're circling the square here okay uh in the Seder square in exactly in talking about the plot right now and trying to explain that the most important line in the movie comes pretty early on when uh uh when uh when our protagonist is getting the uh, is getting the whole time thing explained to him, and he's told, "Don't try to understand it, feel it," and that's just Nolan using a mouthpiece to uh, 
speak directly to the audience none of the plot matters it doesn't matter at all and i i've never been more certain of this in any movie i think there are some movies which are kind of more spectacular uh and and i do have problems with the plot and they do tear down my my perception the movie here i just from from basically maybe even before this line was delivered i i I don't know why exactly until it became explicit, but it was just so clear to me that the events themselves did not matter at all. And to try and piece together this puzzle is just fruitless. And even if you did manage to come up with some bigger picture, I think it would be completely unfulfilling because you're missing the point. And you know, again, I really am generally not an apologist for this kind of movie that n- neglects, you know, cohesion in its narrative. Uh, but I think the, the the style and execution of this movie uh, really demands that. There is, there is nothing extra in this movie. It's literally set piece, then a bit of explanation so you can get to the next set piece. And that's exactly what it wants to be and it doesn't pretend otherwise i think another example of a movie like this is avengers infinity war where it's fight scene uh exposition fight scene but there they're really trying to make it a character driven movie with emotion and and heart and they're trying to rely on the the past that they've built with all the superheroes and trying to really get you connect with them and have the plot, all the action is slightly in the background to that. And that's why I think that movie doesn't work at all because they completely fail at their goal. Here, this similar execution, I think works. Even if it doesn't make for a great movie, it works for an enjoyable viewing experience uh, because they don't pretend to make this about the characters. Sure, there's you know the, the some family uh, marital intrigue, whatever. But that's never what it's about. That's just more plot, which, again, usually I I would not be a fan of. But here, the Nolan commits to it so much that I think it works from a pure viewing standpoint. Ah, uh, 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 the, the the funny thing is, I'm normally like the biggest apologist for movies that have no cohesive plot and are just spectacle, and I just am not a fan of the spectacle like i like i'm just gonna be honest like i really just thought this movie was so boring on every level (laughs) like i like the opening set piece quite a bit i like robert pattinson but like most of the stuff that nolan's obsessed with in this movie with like the the backwards fight scenes like things going forwards and backwards like um and what is it oh I, I i will say i really like the backwards waves but the main thing like the fight scenes the like ex, like the backwards explosions like just don't hit me they're like so like like there's just so like muddled with effects that i i'm just like looking at it was like i you obviously think this is cool like i can see other people think this is cool but i just like don't care like the the so there's like we're getting to spoilers but like, there's that scene, there's that fight scene in the Freeport where um, 
the protagonist and Neil go in the first time and they fight these masked people. And lo and behold, at the end of the movie, we have that same fight scene again, but from the opposite perspective, because those two masked people are Neil, the protagonist, coming going backwards in like time. The middle of the movie, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but like it was the fight, it was a great fight scene the first time, but the second time, I don't need to see the same fight scene in reverse, if that makes sense. And even when they did do the fight scene the first time, it just doesn't look like it just doesn't look right to me. It's not like a fulfilling fight scene at all in any way. It doesn't feel like there's any like like as good as the choreography is, it's so it's so affected and like that there's no like visceral feeling to anything that's going on. Um, like Caleb brought up Infinity War, like I think the the franchise that does this much better to my mind, which just, I don't know how apt this comparison is, but like Mission Impossible, like you see in Ghost Protocol or like Fallout, like those are similar movies that go, that exist and are like huge hits because like you don't go to those movies for the plot. You go to those movies to see the spectacle and because they have this basic, basic um, like spy espionage plot to like put the stunts around. Like you see him on the Burj Khalifa in Ghost Protocol and like he's up there. Like you see like the actual like palm sweaty nature of the stunt being like done by a real person. And Tenet just has nothing of that for me. And it, it really like, I, although maybe I need to see this in the theater because I feel like that's something that would make everything look a lot better. But like Tenet as pure spectacle, just like didn't do anything for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I felt very different. I, I enjoyed, I mean, there's so much of this movie that I enjoy. And I also, you know, exist in a little bit different space than even Caleb does, because while I don't, while I do spend a, spend a lot of time trying to just feel this movie, I was, I really enjoyed trying to unravel part of the plot, which is not to say that, like, that was my crux. Like, I was like, oh, this is the, like, and I got some answers and I'm left with a lot more, but I actually enjoyed that. I'm kind of in that, in a zone where it's like, I actually enjoy the parts, you know, of films where I can spend time unraveling it, just like I did with other Nolan films. Um, this one is a lot more convoluted. So doing so may, uh, may be more feeble, but I, I still enjoy it. So I, I mean, like, so on, I thought, that the action scenes were well done. I, I personally thought they were just as good as a as as a Mission Impossible film to me. Um, I I enjoyed all the all the looping back and going through and like personally enjoyed the going back to that same fight scene um, because you know I think the movie really bought into this really unique idea. This you know if you want to call it a gimmick, whatever this this idea of you know inverted time inverted things happening you know backwards when you're in normal time and then they're actually normal times happening backwards when you're inverted and so it's like i i really enjoyed it and to me there was never a point where i was like oh i'm kidding like oh my god this again i every time it happens i was like kind of glued I, I was honestly i was never bored in this movie personally i was never bored and that to me is a big deal with a movie like this. 
um, two and a half hours long, action-based, very confusing pot, plot. Pot. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really did enjoy it. And I also, I don't know, I don't 100%. I, I agree with Caleb. I do agree to a point, like if you're going to this movie expecting a well-woven plot that, you know, unraveling it makes this beautiful creation. Like some movies are, some movies are meant for you to spend time really getting into the nitty gritty of the plot. This film, I think teeters the line because I think it is, I mean, it's very explicit as Caleb said in one of the dialogue or lines of dialogue it's like don't try to understand it just feel it but i also spent a lot of time trying to run through the crisscrosses of time and stuff and i found answers i was both satisfied with and answers that i didn't get that i was also satisfied not having that experience i think can vary depending on the person so you know maybe you know for caleb his time, his enjoyment was spent not trying to unravel anything, but rather just feel it. You know, for me, it was different. And then for Eric, it just ultimately neither neither feeling it nor unraveling it brought any satisfaction, um, which isn't a bad thing, you know. Let's just, talk about what I did like. How about that? Let's talk about what we liked about this. Or like what I liked. You guys talk oh, about okay. Yeah, I mean, talk, what, what did you like? I like Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson was the best. Uh, I like I Elizabeth Debicki a lot. I mean, she's just such like an imposing presence. Dude, like, doesn't she look like a so, young, like she's just so cool? Like, doesn't she look like a young Cameron Diaz? Like, I'm telling you, go back to some of the shots of her on the on the yacht, and like just her hair, like kind of like bangs, like right in front of her face a little bit, dude. I'm telling you, she looks like a young Cameron Diaz. I'm telling you, that's all I'm saying. Anyways, continue. I, mean, I don't know about. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to say no. To I'm, I'm, gonna pull, to be I'm gonna pull up these pictures. <laughs> I mean, like, she's just such a great presence, and she's like, it, like you know, she like, it. I don't know. She just like, I, I just like, I'm obsessed with her. You know, and like seeing her get into the car and seeing her be taller than everyone, like, that's empowering. Like, that's great stuff. Um, I also Great really like that first fight when um, when um, John David Washington um, meets with um, Kat and they're like they're having dinner together and then Kat leaves. Kat goes into the car very nicely, towering over the man who's taking her, and um, John David Washington fights all those people in the kitchen. Like that's the best fight scene in the entire movie. He slices He's a guy's with face a with a cheese grater. Oh my god! Like that's that was pretty that's nice. That, was a, that I, I, I that I think personally, I think that the, the film kept its composure the entire movie. You know, I know you just you know you think like you know that was a better moment, and I, I agree that was a, that was a nice. It feels moment. like that's like a real action scene where the other ones feel like. Well, and you know, obviously that's because it's the, one of the only action scenes that doesn't have to do with the concept of reversing time, you know? So I can understand why for you, especially it's just like, yeah, that one's better. Also that final like 30 minute sequence where they're doing their, what, what the fuck do they, like temporal pincer, like. Yeah, so the people it's coming so boring. from. It's, it's like so no, boring. It's, like, not it's boring. so boring. Like it's not the boring. entire thing is like random backwards explosions going on and like. 
all it's, these it's, people that it's came out of nowhere just shooting without any actual like I don't I don't feel like there's much at least in, in my memory I don't feel like there's much choreography going on there it's just people shooting at like seemingly nothing I, I for think no apparent purpose like there's several loops in there within the bigger thing because you have the temporal uh pincher when you have the two red team coming from the past or from the present and then blue team coming from the future and then you have neil who both is coming from the future but then inverts back to the present to stop them from going in so there's i think there's enough moving pieces to keep uh, to keep See, me interested the thing, though i could care less <laughs> like well like, okay. himself, you can like, say that about it <laughs> like don't understand it try to feel it. like i don't think understanding it would improve my like emotional or logical understanding of the movie i guess i guess it like, might not but like even just at like watching it i, I like for, for me, it did. I mean, I, I was intrigued and in, in trying to keep all these separate timelines and paths in. And then, you know, I'm sure Caleb even felt different from me. You know, I think, it, I mean, you know, it's all relative. Uh-huh. Um, what what else you did you of, like? Um, what did you think of uh, John David Washington? I think he was good. Um, I think he added, I, I think he was solid. Um, I think... You know, in my back of my mind, I was, you know, I'm not comparing them directly, but I was comparing John David Washington uh, and the character that he kind of had to deal with. I was comparing it to our last Coen Brothers movie, actually. I wasn't like comparing them, but in the back of my head, I was thinking about um, someone want to give me his name? Um, Tom Reagan. Yes. Um, I... I thought about, I thought of them as similar, but then I realized that I appreciated, I think there was a little bit more of a charismatic, kinder approach to how he performed the protagonist. And they're different characters with completely different, I don't know, I, I enjoyed it. I thought, uh, um, I thought, oh my God, what's his name? Um, Neil. Yeah, I thought Robert Pattinson was easily the best performer. I thought he gave an amazing performance, especially towards the end, once some of the plot lines start revealing themselves and you kind of figure out who he actually is. If that's something you actually like, you know, thought about. But like, I I think that I think he did an okay job. What do you What do you think? You think? Yeah, I I agree. I agree to an extent. Like, I think he definitely had a very hard role. Um, like, to, to go back to Miller's Crossing, like, Tom Reagan is a character who, it, like, doesn't give us a lot, but, like, you can feel, like, Caleb mentioned that scene um, where we where they're going back to Miller's Crossing to find the body. Like, he who you, you can feel he has this intense inner life, and I don't necessarily know if um, Nolan's script gives the protagonist that same, yeah, that same... It, like inner life inner emotion like um so like in that sense it's a very hard role and it's a role that requires a lot of just pure charisma to pull off and i i don't necessarily know if he pulled off um but as if like a pure physical performer i think he definitely does okay i will say i found it very funny how a lot of in the first half of the movie his lines are pretty much just like we will say like do you know who blank 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 is? He goes like, yes, go on, 
two minutes of him explaining exactly what that is. Or like he he has that meeting with Michael Caine. Is it, and I think Michael Caine like asks like, do you know what a Freeport is? And like, he goes on like, he's like, yes, like Freeports. This is, <laughs> I thought that was yeah, pretty, that was pretty funny. One big criticism of this film is that there's a lot of exposition, which is not, I don't think, uncommon for Nolan films, especially ones that deal with such convoluted ideas. Um, I will also say that I, I definitely noticed several times that the dialogue in respect to no one films was probably the weakest, if not one of the weakest, uh, but I didn't care. Um, I, I recognize it as being oh, yeah. true. The thing is, I don't care either. I, that's the thing. No, I know. I know. No. And that's okay. I'm not shaming you. I just don't care Same, Eric. in a negative. Ah. Shame. I just, I, I didn't care that the dialogue was that bad because I was still entertained as hell. Like could the movie had been, better you know could could a lot of exposition have been instead more creatively done could you know a b and c yeah would it have raised my rating maybe i don't know but either way i still enjoyed it um but i do agree i did notice especially when it came to his lines in particular how it was written he was given a lot of exposition obviously and a lot of dialogue that was just you know either one either it was either one word responses or you know three paragraphs um i don't know i you know i don't know what you can do about that besides be better at writing <laughs> dialogue speaking of the dialogue like i feel like the big thing about this movie that people have been talking about is the sound design like what are your guys' mm -hmm. thoughts on the sound of this movie and how like, like speaking of dialogue, like how often could you actually hear the dialogue yeah. and did that, like, what are your thoughts on that choice? That's what that was, yeah, yeah, Zach, you said like, this was his worst dialogue of any movie. And it's like, wow, that must mean you, you heard most of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had, I watched with subtitles. That's mm. why I have to, I have, I mean, I, I mean, like I obviously don't get the option at the theater. And in fact, if I saw it in the theater, I think I would have had a lesser experience in that regard, but I have to watch with subtitles because I'm practically deaf in my left ear. So. So I, <laughs> I feel the waves, but, but see, there were is, times, mm, sorry, go ahead. This is what, remember the other, the other day when I was like, I listened to dialogue as like sound effect as a musical instrument. Nolan's perfected that. How about that? How about that? <laughs> perfected. <laughs> no, he has not. David He's Lynch perfected has. perfected it. <laughs> Nolan is just a practitioner. <laughs> I, I don't think, I think this was in terms of Nolan movies. I mean, this is not the first Nolan movie to deal with explosions or a lot of loud things, but that, that, that was definitely noticeable. Um, I, I maybe, I don't know why it's like, it seems a little too, I don't know. Like, I don't want to say lazy. But like, honestly, I'm going to say lazy. Like, it just doesn't seem like it just seems like there were times where it was too loud and you couldn't hear what was being said. Like, and I don't know if that's a choice of putting, you know, when you're putting the dialogue or that the sound mixer fucked up. And, you know, I, I have no idea, honestly. Um, but For people like you who are trying to understand the movie, <laughs> that was your first prank. mistake. That's literally <laughs> prank. Yeah, I, I mean... Luckily, I had subtitles on because I did notice it at parts. That is true. Um, otherwise, let's we should continue on the sound path um, from that aspect week. But there were also other stronger components. And I'm also curious what you think about the score. Um, you know, this is his first film. I like the score. I'm just gonna say it. Okay, interesting. Horrible, horrible. Are you, 
That's just so funny. On a table, you're just banging on a table. <laughs> no, it's but some music. of those synths are so cool. You know me. If you know me, you know I'm a big sucker for synths. You know it. You know it. And I loved it. I loved it. It was good. It wasn't my favorite Nolan score, not by a long shot. Worse than it was good. Oh my god, Dun- Dunkirk's score is so good. Dunkirk score is the only thing that makes that movie good. Anyways, what is going uh, on? Oh, <laughs> no, that's false. You, Dunkirk you guys, is like one of the best like Dunkirk's no, score was pushing clocks over, which is only <laughs> slightly better than Tennant's score, which is banging on a table. I think as long as, to watch Dunkirk. as long as no, I, I don't. Dunkirk's a Dunkirk's bad movie. Dunkirk's score is so good. I mean, Dunkirk Elgar. is no one's worst film. Dunkirk's no one's worst film. Dunkirk is Nolan's, like one of <laughs> Nolan's best, like top tier. Oh, man. Oh, oh, man. Man. Let's get back. Let's get back. Okay, so we got, we got mixed reviews on the sound. Um, <laughs> what did you guys think of uh, Patrick Patrick Patterson? <laughs> Robert Pattinson, my hero. What, what am I doing? What I mean, Pattinson's just like a, like a real movie star. Like he's a real movie star now. My guy. My guy, look at his hair. Dude, look at really his stubble. Is. He looks great. Like, what are you going to really say is. that's going to, like, he, what are you going to say to knock him down? Who do you think gave a better performance, him or um, the woman who played? Um, Debicki? Yes. Sorry, Debicki. Uh, I think Pat Pattinson has just, like, the best role in the movie. Like, the final, t- like, twist that's supposed to, or, like, or it's supposed to at least look like some sort of emotional ending, like, has to do, like, revolves entirely around him. He's just a bigger characters like in that sense like Pattinson's definitely the one that shines you know what's interesting sorry Caleb I'm just oh what's interesting is you know I wonder too how much you know I don't think it would matter for either of you I I don't think it would change your opinions but you know after the way I viewed the film and then watching some more stuff about the film afterwards you know the since I've been revealed more of the plot it actually enhanced my experience but you know, it might be one of those things I know, you know, Caleb, for you, you said it probably, I don't, I mean, you just said it wasn't a big part for you, right? It wasn't any part. Like if I, if, 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 if I was like, okay, so it turns out blank, like you would probably be like, I don't care. I, like I, I, I still, I enjoy it. you before you could. <laughs> you would smother me. Um, Honestly, I think actually realizing that the plot in some way was coherent would make my appreciation of the film go. See, then I want to. I, I want to talk to you about the it. Ambition of creating a movie that's so like so intentionally incoherent and smothered that you have to just look at the spec. Like, so actually, plot, I would like the movie less. Eric, I feel like this movie, when you boil it down, if you take away the gimmicks part of it, it's actually has a simpler plot than Inception. Um, I don't want to, I'm not going to say it. I, I want everyone to have their own experience with the film, but Eric, we should talk sometime about it because I want to tell you what I have been revealed and see if it at all changes your idea of the film. I just don't think the film has enough an emotion of an emotional basis. That is fair. Enough, like anything to do with character more than these actors being vessels for action that any information would make my like, emotional connection to the film any stronger i i live in a middle ground i don't think obviously i don't think the emotional connection of characters is at all at the forefront of this film but i do think knowing you know just knowing certain components i i know i do value the characters in some 
sense. And I didn't see them as just vessels for action, but that's also just, just based on, you know, how I viewed. I know. guess, I guess like the main, like, I feel like a lot of Nolan's twist movies at the end of the movie, it's like a huge, like the twist is like grounded in some sort of emotion or like delusion or something like, like I think of the end of, have you seen Memento? I have not. Yeah. I have not. Oh, okay. I'm not going to spoil it then. But like the end of Memento, you watch it and it completely recontextualizes everything you've seen. And that recontextualization is grounded in something really, really sad. Whereas in this movie, the ending twist is, oh, we've known each other for years. I've just been here to help out. Like, I feel like that's the, that was my understanding of what happens at the end with Robert Pattinson. Like, it's it's more like, than that. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, it's, it's, I, no, I'm not like Robert Pattinson delivers it. And it's like, it's, it's like it works it's the, cool but it's like it's not the same thing like i don't think it's the it's the sort of thing where like even if i understood all the stuff that happened in the middle like i like emotionally there's nothing that would change you know i agree with you and disagree with you at the same time i'm in a perpetual state of uh disagreeing and agreeing i think you are correct and that it does not carry the same recontextualization as other Nolan films, but I disagree in the sense that I think I think it does matter. I, I mean, at least for me personally, um, I do think the ending gives more weight, especially the way I view things. Um, but no, is it like is it the same way? I haven't seen Memento, um, but I even just think Interstellar, and you guys know how much I love Interstellar. I mean, the the ideas that come at the end for me completely give so much meaning to the rest of the film. And that I do agree that that sensation, that feeling, that's that like everything you've been viewing has now been recontextualized and like you have a new scope on it the last two and a half hours, that doesn't really happen as much in Tenant. And that's probably because the weight isn't put on the characters. Like you, like, you know, like you were saying, you don't really give a, you know, you don't care. I mean, I, I, I see why. I see why compared to some of the other known films. And what I will say is Interstellar is like, yeah, I, I, I don't really care either. I'm just more, I'm more interested, but I don't, I didn't, I didn't have an emotional weight in the characters like I did for other known films. So that's my. Yeah. I mean, for Interstellar, like, I feel like the, the emotional power of Interstellar is just like baked into the premise. Just this idea of like time passing at different. That's speeds, true. Like, that's that's, and that's why I think Tenant differs. Tenant differs because Tenant, I feel like Tenant, if I'm being completely honest, I think you kind of hit it at the nail, the hit the nail on the head at the beginning that Nolan saw this five, you know, this this palindrome <laughs> thing, and he was like, I'm gonna make a film out of that. Because it's a good film. I will say this. I like Tenant a lot, but where's the weight? Where's the where's the the meaning? I guess I can derive from it it's nowhere near the same as it is for interstellar as it is for the prestige as it is for a b c d you know i can go down the list tenant feels the most hollow but at least the outside shell is nice and tasty that's all i'm gonna say i think that's the perfect way for me to put it like interstellar to me (laughs) and some of other no one's films are like an amazing center with a gooey creamy caramel middle this film is a (laughs) amazing outer layer with it's just hollow inside it's not hollow it's like it's like milk chocolate but who wants milk chocolate on the inside you know what i'm saying so that's my metaphor for the film (laughs) now i'm hungry
<laughs> All right. Well, I think we, we should go into our final thoughts. Uh, unless you haven't viewed any words you wanted to add, uh, Eric. I, I think we're about to go from one hard to understand movie to another. That's yeah. my thought. Well, and one I enjoyed a lot more than the other. All right. Um, I'm going to start by just saying, uh, yeah, I'm a big Nolan fan. I, I guess I'm a fake fan because I'm still missing two films. So uh, I, I'm probably a fake fan and especially Memento. I don't know how I still haven't seen it one day. Um, you know, I'm obviously Nolan holds a special place in my heart. Made my favorite movie of all time. Um, and so I go in with a little bit of bias, but I enjoyed Tenant. I really enjoyed the action. I enjoyed the concept. I thought it was very creative, very like profoundly interesting to me. Um, it definitely grabbed my attention throughout. I thought uh, Robert Pattinson did an amazing job and everyone else did a great job, but Robert Pattinson definitely took the cake for me. Um, I think that the movie didn't feel too long or too short. It felt good. It would paced very well, kind of very quickly. There was never really a lot of downtime in the film. And I like that. Um, I almost, you know, when you compared it, you know, I know you weren't really comparing it and you were more like contrasting it, but in my head, I do compare it to almost the actiony feeling of a mission impossible movie. Um, and I thought that was a good thing. I, I enjoyed how it flowed and everything overall, you know, at the end of the day, that middle chunk that, you know, that creamy goodness, uh, it was missing a little bit, but I was in entertained enough and interested enough in the concepts and interested enough in the characters that ultimately I can still say that at the end of the day, Tenant is a three and a half star film. Well, I'm just going to go with my pros and cons. Pros, Pattinson, Debicki. The backwards water. Um, I actually I like seeing I always like seeing Michael Caine. Uh, the rest of it, um, I'm just gonna go with pretty bland. Um, thought the spectacle that mainly the spectacle I thought was very bland, and I was very like very very disappointed with that. Um, and on a second viewing, I thought it was even more bland than I originally thought. Um, two stars. I do think that this is Christopher Nolan's Mission Impossible movie. Uh, um, as a Mission Impossible movie, I don't think it lives up to the actual installment. So in this sense, I think I'm, I'm in between you, both you guys, Zach and Eric. Um, but that's what it felt like to me with just the the plotting and action and especially as you just highlighted zach the pacing uh just breezed by i thought for such a long and narratively convoluted movie uh no nobody went there before so i guess i'll have to be the one to officially on the record state that uh john david washington was not good uh <laughs> bland eric you used to describe the whole movie that's exactly how i would describe his performance bland in a way that did not feel intentional which i think makes it worse um otherwise like as we mentioned uh the sound was kind of ridiculous and that you just can't hear much and 
man, I still hear that banging on tables in my sleep. Uh, but no, you know, just to watch and not try and understand is something that I haven't done in a movie theater in I I could not tell you how long. And it was uh, a thrill to do just that uh, because it's so rare that I'm willing to uh, to to undergo uh, that process. So I enjoy that, even if this wasn't a great or even a good movie. Um, and I don't think the stars really reflect how I feel about watching the movie. Um, but I guess if I have to rate it, I give it two and a half stars. But I, I did, I did enjoy watching it. You know who would have been a better protagonist? Matthew McConaughey. All right. Yeah. So now, Bar- <laughs> I know, I know. Um, Eric, a uh, quick question for you: Is this at the bottom of your uh, of all time for Nolan? Uh, it might be above Insomnia. It better be above Insomnia. Yeah, it's second yeah. to last. Okay, okay, second to last. Mine, for me, it ranks at fifth, only below Interstellar, The Prestige, Inception, and The Dark Knight. You put it above Dunkirk? Above Dunkirk. I don't like Dunkirk. You guys know this. I hate Dunkirk. I don't like it. One day that may change. I'm sorry, Nolan. I just don't like it. I saw it in theaters and I didn't like it. Yeah, I have it above Dunkirk and I have it above the other two Batman movies, but I also have not seen Memento and uh, Insomnia. So, there you go. All right. Doodlebug. About what? <laughs> Doodlebug. Doodlebug? Yeah. What, what, what are you talking about? That's... It's like a 14-minute short. That's just... That's oh. that's it's like three, it's three, it's three minutes. <laughs> I have not seen it. <laughs> Although, I mean, it gives me inspiration that if I can make three-minute shorts, one day I will be making Tenant. You know, I, that's how that works. <laughs> exactly. All right, Eric, do us the honors. Introduce yes. to us uh, our beloved Cohen Brothers movie, uh, the fifth film, uh, Barton Fink. Wait, is it their? I I, I was about to start. I'm sorry, on fourth. Is it their fifth it's or fourth. their fourth? It's their fourth. It's their fourth. Okay, yeah. Um, this is the Cohen's fourth movie. Um, it was a pretty big hit. I think it was. This was their first Palm Door win at Cannes. Um, and it's um, essentially the story of John Turturro's Barton Fink, who has recently achieved a level like mini stardom in New York on the Broadway scene writing theater and is invited to Los Angeles to write scripts for, um, is it Capital Pictures is what it's called? Um, and as his first assignment, he is, in, he is supposed to write a, like a boxing wrestling movie. And the film Barton Fink essentially shows us his intense writer's block. And the movie gets more and more surreal with characters such as uh, John Goodman's Charlie Meadows, who is his next door neighbor, who is this like rough and tumble man, who in a way is meant to be the subject of Fink's um, screenplays and um, screenplays and plays, which are supposed to create a theater for the common man, as he calls it. 
um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily become the case. And um, things just become crazier and crazier. There's a murder, there's some hellfire, there's some police investigation, there's a crazy painting, there's bugs, all of it. Um, yeah, it's definitely, a, a. I think we said this with Miller's Crossing, sort of impenetrable, um, but I think more so than Miller's Crossing, this is pretty much flat out surreal. Um, so I'm definitely wondering what you guys think about that shit. Can I ask you a question? And for me, it's different because I've seen, I guess at this point, I've seen a handful now of Coen Brothers films. Is it just me that this doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers film? Um, like, it just didn't feel like, at least definitely not like the first three. Like, it, it just, I don't know. Like, I watched it and everything from what I had derived from the first three films, which all did separate things well, you know, some had better dialogue than others. Some, you know, the, the shots were better than others. But ultimately, I thought what's so funny is I know that this, you know, you just said that this was their first one to win, uh, you know, awards. I didn't, I just didn't feel it. I just didn't feel like it was very Coen brothers. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm realizing that I'm not a big fan of surrealism, but uh, I don't know. I, I, something was missing for me. A lot was missing for me. I'm just curious what you guys, you know, like. Um, I, I thought in many ways, this is a very classic Coen brothers movie. Like John Turturro's Barton Fink is the like, down on his luck, sort of pitiful male main character in the vein of like a Michael Stuhlbarg in A Serious Man or um, sort of Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading or Lewin Davis um, or the, um, what's that guy's name that dies in Blood Simple, the one who gets dragged out in the middle of the night? What's his name? The brother? Yeah, him. Um, and it has their cast of characters. And I think a lot of the absurdism is like very classic. Like, Marty. Marty. It's Marty. But like, like, I feel like John Turturro's interactions with John Goodman, which make up a, like a good portion of the first half of the movie, are just like classic, like sort of awkward, like darkly comedic, like absurd Cohen's dialogue. Um, John Goodman comes up at the very end to become that like agent of chaos, like and violence archetype. Um, and I, I also think the weird genre, like the crazy genre shifts feel very Cohen's to me. Although I will say this movie is like definitely a, a big, a lot more intense in terms of those things than their previous three. But I do see the veins. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, you know, wherever we'll start, it's just like, you know, I, again, I'm still, I'm still new to the Coen Brothers. I, I haven't seen a lot of their newer stuff at all, actually. Um, you know, so I've been kind of following through the stepping stones of the last three, Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and then Miller's Crossing. And I just didn't find myself as invested um, I wasn't particularly, con I mean, I don't think I ever felt super connected to a, a, a protagonist in the Coen Brothers film, at least in the first three, but I, you know, I, I can see what you're saying and how they connect and like, you know, the, what tropes are still there, but 
I don't know if it was the writing, if it was, I mean, that's so vague. I don't know. It just didn't have the same feeling as the last three we've watched. You know, obviously Raising Arizona, much more absurdist. And then Blood Simple and Miller's Crossing, much more... I guess, I don't know what realistic or I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm struggling with this and I don't know why. Yeah, that's totally fair. It's a bit of a tough one to crack. I think this one feels to me, I I don't actually know if this is true. Like, do you know if at all, if like this story is, I, I don't know about autobiographical, but like, I think in some way this story has to be in relation to has to be related somewhat to their writing process as well as their experiences in Hollywood. And I, I think there is something about being autobiographical that could make this more surreal. Um, but I also do agree with you. I think Barton Fink just isn't a very likable character at all. Um, like in the other movies as, um, as pitiful or as like self-pitying um, as other Cohen's characters are, they're still sort of charming. Like I find Tom Reagan very charming. Um, or and like Nick Cage in Raising Arizona, obviously, like is hilarious. Um, whereas Barton Fink, you sort of see him like in his first thing with John Goodman, he's talking about how he wants to like tell stories about what he calls like the common people and like rough and tumble individuals living their lives. And John Goodman is there to like being like, do you want to hear some stories? And he keeps cutting him off. Like Barton Fink is sort of just like a pretentious douche and the entire movie. I, I don't want There's something predetermined about it in the way that like, you know, every time he's about to start writing that like John Goodman is going to come in and something crazy is going to happen or, um, yeah, I don't know. The absurdism is very, um, I want to say, like, it feels, it feels a little mapped out in this one, I guess. I think, yeah, I think that the, this brand of surrealism, I think, defined in large part by overt symbolism does not mesh well with the character of Barton Fink, because I think that this guy who pretends to be, you know, one of the people uh, who really just becomes a pretentious Hollywood sellout. uh, I think that's an interesting story and that's, how they hook you in the beginning, especially in those early conversations, as Eric mentioned with John Goodman, uh, they really get you with this, with the humor of this guy who, you know, pretends he cares uh, about people while, you know, distancing himself from, you know, the very people who are making him successful. I think that's very interesting as a, as a character study. And then, alongside that you have this conflict of him 
having a deadline to write and getting distracted all the time. And I think those two work really well in tandem with one another. And then you're piled on with the surrealism that not only I think is too symbolic that takes away from the story, but also is so it cuts the real out of surreal. It it, it it doesn't even, it's so over the top. It doesn't even feel surreal. It just feels like you're in a entirely different world, which is contrary to the setup. And I think contrary to uh, the success of the character arcs, I, I guess I'm more into Kaufman like surrealism where you feel like you are always in the same world and it's kind of shrinking in on you and, and squeezing you uh, until there, there's almost nothing left of the protagonist. Here, it feels like you are just transported into some place that doesn't exist, that takes you out of the roots of the story and just slices away uh, all the emotional connection that you had with it. And I think, what does that leave you with Ultimately, I don't know. Uh, Nothing I cared every, about. Everything that you started with, you know, n- almost none of it is there by the ending. And the ending itself, I don't think, is anything tremendous. Uh, so I think there's just a huge divide within the story itself that is not ever justified. I don't think that this over the top surrealism, overt symbolism, justifies basically slicing the story into two completely different acts that you know just are in opposition fundamentally to one another yeah i think i I actually i don't mind over symbolism that i definitely i definitely it definitely annoys me but i think the the main thing that trips up barton fink is that as you said the second half of the movie i think you mentioned it that's where it goes to overt surrealism I think the bigger issue is that the second half of the movie is so preoccupied with this whole murder and this idea of John Goodman as this serial killer who's been going around chopping people's heads off that it feels like it's completely not about Barton Fink anymore. And that's like the entire, like that entire descent into madness of that is just like far less interesting than what's been built up before. Yeah. Um, Hey, Caleb, would you say that this film is Sir? Um, Surreal without the real. That that is not the least apt description. (laughs) Here's what I want to say. When I was watching this movie, I almost just felt like, I'm not trying to say that, you know, maybe I did. Like maybe I just haven't, maybe I wasn't in the right, moments and i don't know but i just feel like i wasn't getting something like it was just like like for me i was just like oh it just over my head out the door the door burned down and it is gone like i i like to me it felt like and and this is a broad stroke of an assumption or not an assumption of an opinion but to me when you mentioned charlie kaufman this movie felt like a bad charlie kaufman movie (laughs) And like, that's all I have to say. Like, I, I, you know, I, I just like, I understood 
that there were parts that, you know, that I understood the surrealism, but I guess I didn't understand it, if that makes any sense. Like I recognized it, but I wasn't getting anything from it. Like I, personally, I was just like, it was just kind of like, I don't understand where like with a Kaufman film, and I know it's very hard to really compare, but like with a Kaufman film, like you were saying, it, it kind of like digs its roots in reality and this kind of closing in feeling. I, I don't know. I just felt like I didn't get that same satisfaction of the surrealism. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I, I think in Kaufman films, the fact that it uh, it feels to me at least like it's rooted in reality allows you to, uh, I think, see things in your, your own life. It, it reflects back onto you, I think, his specific brand of surrealism, which is why I think it's so emotionally powerful and so relevant in his movies. Whereas here, I'm not sure that the surrealism is actually relevant or necessary, uh, at least not, not in every case. And I don't think it really also digs into this emotional connection that you should be having. Uh, for example, um, when John Goodman comes back and, and kills those police officers and he's walking through the hotel and lights everything on fire, the, the symbolism there, this brand of surrealism gets you to ask like, what's going on? Or uh, are, are, is Barton Fink in hell? Is that what this is supposed to be symbolizing? What does this mean? And I think whatever answer you come up with for that question doesn't matter. I don't think it makes it a better movie. And I don't definitely don't think uh, it's going to reflect back on your own life and make you evaluate your own place in the world. Not that any movie has to, but just in comparing surrealism, I, I really like how Kaufman brings that to the table. Overall, uh, all these, all, all these just you know heavy symbols. I don't like they're there, but I don't understand how they serve the story. I wish it had just been more simple, honestly, and they just focused on- Love simple. Hey, I mean, <laughs> there it is. That's my favorite, right? I just wish it had focused on this, this character, uh, that this elitist who's pretending to be a con man, who's just being distracted by, by simpler things that can still be surreal, like the wallpaper coming down inexplicably and him, you know, giving up writing to go fix that. That's great. I love, I love that kind of surrealism and how that keeps plaguing him because, you know, it's rooted in something that I think connects to the character and fits the story. And I wish it had been more of that instead of uh, assassinations in a burning hotel room. I think the second half of the film just really like, I was, I was, I was on track. I was following, like, I was, I don't know. I don't, maybe I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like not understanding it or, you know, maybe I need a, another viewing would put me in a different, I just like the second half of the movie feels so much different, like so much different. And I know that's purposeful. I don't know, Eric, do you, what, what, I, I think you might be the most favorable out of the three of us. Maybe not. Um, was there anything, or like in terms of like you enjoyed it the most? Um, did you like what? Did the, what I'm trying to get at is like, is there anything in the second half of the film that you did like? Was there any of those that you thought did work? Uh, or I don't um, know. 
I think, yeah, I definitely see what Caleb is saying. I think um, the surrealism is, I, I agree that I actually, I also love the wallpaper coming down in his, um, in his room. Um, yeah, I, like the surrealism in the second half isn't subjective um, at all to the character. It's surrealism, or I guess, I don't know why I associate the second half of this movie more with like absurdism. I guess they're very similar, but like um, the surrealism in the second half exists to put these frameworks of good and evil, heaven and hell, these biblical and moral frameworks onto this character who has been thus far existing in this um, almost like timeless, like settingless, like hotel room. Um, and yeah, I guess, I don't know, I just found it more entertaining the second time more just willing to like not understand it just feel it <laughs> and like just like be like okay yeah like yeah and like now John Goodman is gonna come and like the hotel is gonna entirely catch on fire and like that's pretty cool like <laughs> and I think I think there's stuff that I'm like not entirely like familiar with in terms of what the Coens are trying to do in terms of playing with a different genre and like switching up the genre form of what Barton Fink as a movie is in the second half, like when it does become a police investigation that quickly turns into something like a, like a monster movie or something. But I, I found some more entertainment in that. Um, I think more than anything, I just found more enjoyment this time in the first half. Um, I think especially what I enjoyed this time was just like Barton Fink's apartment. Like Barton Fink is in LA and he's living in this like rinky dink little apartment that's just like so, so cut off from like what everything like LA is like um he like the closest thing he has to a window is that painting that sits like above him on the desk that has that like woman staring out into the um into the ocean um and what I'm assuming is the California coast and I thought just like that cramped like dis like detached from everything unempathetic nature of like his brain like put into this space. I, I thought that was pretty funny, honestly. And I liked a lot of the stuff that they were doing, like sort of tableau shots where like John, where like, sorry, Turturro would like sit alone on the bed and then the camera would like dolly back and it would look exactly like a theater set. Just like the artificiality of it all. Like I, I just like appreciated it more. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed a lot of the early parts of the film. I actually enjoyed the conversations and interactions between Barton Fink and um, the other writer. Oh, uh, I love him. I love that. But like, that yeah, um, I, I, I liked, I don't know. I, you know, I can understand. I can I can I can understand why I like the first half of the film and I can't fully understand why I don't like the second half in terms of the more surreal or what you said is absurd um you know maybe a bit of both um I don't know I think attitude towards Hollywood is because like we've been mainly talking about this as a character study and like a character piece on Barton Fink who is this reclusive as Caleb I think as Caleb perfectly said it like this like Hollywood sellout like um, what do you think this movie's actual um, like stance is towards Hollywood as an industry, as a place? 
as um, or like towards writers in general, like screen the place of screenwriters. Yeah, I think it's pretty cynical. Uh, one one example of that is, I think Barton Fink reaches the end of his rope basically because he turns in a script that is, uh, I think suggests it is is artistic is avant-garde in a way that hollywood uh rejects and they just wanted a simple wrestling movie he says this is the best thing i've ever written and and you know the executive doesn't want to hear it um and i i think that's not an uncommon view especially of of old hollywood um whether they're trying to analogize that situation to present day or what was present day Hollywood is, is more subject to interpretation. But I think within the confines of the movie, it's definitely a more cynical view, which I think fits because they want to make Fink look like a guy who is giving up a more pure uh, discipline in theater to, to come to LA and Hollywood and kind of, wreck his life yeah i think too it has a very interesting idea of of the of the writers right like you know as caleb was mentioned mentioning the idea of leaving the pier to come to, to la and what that does to you as a writer um you know just the the, the transitions we the transition we see from Barton Fink in the beginning to the end, but also the other writer that we see and just the overall attitude towards writers. You know, there's one scene in particular where the producer is saying, you know, you need to find a writer uh, to help you. And he's like, just throw a rock somewhere in this room. He's like, but throw it really hard. Like there's an, there's an obvious, uh, whether it's commentary about writers or whether it's commentary on the reflection of how writers are seen in Hollywood, there's some there's something there, and I also think it's purposeful that that Barton Fink is is thinks of himself as this Robin Hood, you know, common man. You know, he's he's making shows for and about the common man, but in reality, we see him as being just in the end, just as pretentious and just as you know higher up as the as the person he pretends not to be, and. I think whether that's reflecting on, you know, mm-hmm. what Hollywood makes in the writers or how writer, you know, a, a, a criticism of how uh, writers think that they view themselves or how they view themselves and the world. I don't know. I, I found that intriguing. I found that aspect intriguing. And what Caleb was saying in the beginning about the ideas about Hollywood, the commentary about L.A., that was also intriguing and that that to me really suddenly in the second half was no longer a focal point um tragically because i think that was the most intriguing aspect of it in fact i thought it was so intriguing because there are films that try to discuss what it is like being a writer or what it is like working in Hollywood. You know, I mean, think about a you know, very different film, but we just watched Mank um, that is about, you know, one particular writer working in this, you know, system. And I think 
this film, Barton Fink at the beginning, beginning did a great job of capturing something and creating this commentary on Hollywood and writing, but ultimately seemed to leave it behind. Yeah, I think, I think it puts the blame sort of on both of them. Like the, like Fink's, I don't think that at least most of Barton Fink's struggles to write a script stem almost at all from studio interference. Um, like we see that producer get so mad at someone for even considering that Barton Fink like didn't know what he was doing. Like he makes the, he fires a man and makes the man kiss Barton Fink's feet to like dare like speak ill against a writer. Um, but at the same, like I think Barton Fink's like main issue is that he just has like, he's just so self-obsessed. And I, I don't know, I, 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 I asked that question about Hollywood because that's something I was trying to think about. Like I, I, I see what you guys are saying, but I, I don't think that this film, like despite the actual outcome of Fink's script, blames Barton Fink, blames the system at all for any of Barton Fink's actual struggles as a writer in Hollywood. I, I, I agree. I think, there's, I think there's a lot more, I think there's a lot of commentary on writers more than, more than there is Hollywood, but I still think there is, I still think it's a cynical idea of both. Um, you know, and I just, you know, this comes back to, I think there, it's also doesn't help how unlikable Fink is, you know, throughout the film, even in scenes where he's trying to be likable and nice, specifically to uh, the woman. Um, there's the scene in the park where he's trying to comfort her. He doesn't come across as comforting. He comes across as creepy as hell. And even in the bedroom scene, when he invites her, you know, over and everything, it's like, I don't know, man. Like, it doesn't feel right. He never feel it. It feels like he doesn't. It seems like he is this man who exists in this dimension of, oh, pity me. I'm a poor man. I'm a common man. But also, I am just trying to manipulate you. And, you know, I'm so sucking this. He's just not likable. At the end of the day, he's not likable. He is, in my opinion, of the films I've seen, he's one of the most, or the, one of the least likable characters in, in a Coen Brothers film. I, I just, I never for one minute was feeling, I, I, at the end of the day, as it kept going and I kept seeing kind of more of this weird behavior and I don't know if it had to do more with how the character was written or, and I'm not trying to put any blame on, um, do you, what's his name? John, uh, yes. But it something just didn't strike me right. I I just did. I I I I felt nothing for him, and in fact, felt more pity and uncomfortability with the character. Yeah, um, I think this is a movie that definitely um, deserves a revisit later. Maybe, maybe another time. <laughs> I know. I. I, you know, because like I really want to spend time trying to put my head into the second half of the film, especially. And I really think this is one of those films that has potential for me to suddenly have it click, you know, have it be like, you know what? I, I'm feeling it. The gears are turning in my head. I'm, I'm getting something from it. But on the first viewing, while I can appreciate small components and appreciate the ideas, especially that were present at the beginning of the film, ultimately, I'm left unsatisfied at the end. So 
All right. I guess we'll go into final reviews. I pretty much said my piece. Um, uh, you know, I just, you know, it almost, the very different films, but you take two films that are very convoluted uh, as in, you know, Tennant and Barton Fink, ultimately at the end of the day, sometimes it doesn't matter the amount of how convoluted they are. It has to do with just a feeling of satisfaction you get at the end of the film and throughout the film. And in one, I was satisfied and the other, I was not. And perhaps uh, in a future viewing, I'll, you know, things could change, but ultimately, you know, Barton Fink just, you know, it wasn't for me. Wasn't for me. So two and a half stars. Uh, this movie is set up in a real world, not necessarily the real world, but a real world. And after Audrey's unexplained death, that real world is completely gone and you're transported somewhere completely different. And I just don't understand why when the best parts of this movie uh, are a product of that real world. I think that that shift just destroys the potential uh, that this movie had. Uh, I should mention that I thought John Goodman was tremendous. He did a wonderful job. Uh, and <laughs> this conversation has me questioning myself, but I think I'll, I'll hold firm for the moment now at two and a half stars. Yeah. Um, I feel like I already, I pretty much said everything I had to say. Um, and you guys have pretty much said a lot of my thoughts as well. Um, I guess. Yeah. The main thing I would also say, like, I was surprised this was Roger Deakins, like pretty great. Like, not not surprised because it was bad, but more surprised because I just happy to see him, I guess. Um, and yeah, I still hold out hope that maybe I'll find more out of this next time. But I, I do agree with Caleb in the sense that the more surreal it gets, it doesn't seem like that surrealism does much to inform me about what's going on in a provocative or profound way. Um, but... I did, I did enjoy the first half a lot more this time. And I talked a lot about like, just like Barton Fink's room and I was like, just really enjoying just looking at it. <laughs> um, and I gave this movie three stars. You know why this movie wasn't good? It's because Frances McDormand wasn't in it. But she, she was. was. She was, okay, her voice was in it, but I mean, she didn't uh, appear in it. <laughs> you know, I think I that's the- Like that, yeah. That's the truth. I wouldn't sign. be prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I'd sneak it in there. You guys clapped back pretty quick. Well, boys, it was also shout out to uh, Steve uh, Buscemi. 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 Yeah. Not I wanted more chat. of him. He's so cool. <laughs> Not enough, dude, that was an interesting character that I wanted. That was like a that we could talk all day. Well, maybe not about this film, but uh, <laughs> either way. Yeah. Well, move maybe it, that move was it. the best surreal moment that was more real the chat that. the chat yeah honestly that 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 part stuck in me like it reminds me of his character in mystery train like his his character in mystery train i think also like works in like a seedy hotel as people come like in and out and like with similar mm -hmm. like funny quirky like jarmushian things going on more of him 
So, so next week we'll be discussing the next Coen Brothers film, uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, right? Um, yep. and, and a TBA. And a TBA. It's a surprise. We have a huge surprise. But Our next uh, movie, The Man Who Wasn't There, I'm very excited. excited. I also very... have not seen this one yet. So, And then we're two weeks out from uh, Inside Lewin Davis, which I'm personally very excited for. So well, uh, be my first viewing. I'm very... So, All right. Well, on that note, uh, we wish you a great week and we will see you next time.